We are ex-Overland, and over the past 10 years, my wife and I have established a business doing what we love. Throughout the last 10 years, we have built over 20 Overland vehicles that have taken us and our team around the world as we film our adventures. My name is Clay Croft, and I am the founder and CEO of ex-Overland. On this podcast, we take a deep dive beyond what the camera can capture to offer you as much insight into the world of Overland travel as possible. If you haven't heard the news, Overlander Network just got even better. Overlander Network is the place to find all of X Overland's legacy and most current premium content, along with our popular masterclass series teaching you how to build your Overland vehicle from stock. With Overlander Network, you can now watch on your favorite devices through the new Overlander Network app. You can download all your favorite content to take with you on the trail and enjoy ad-free, family-friendly entertainment. You can watch video versions of this podcast, enjoy monthly live streams, and of course, be the first to watch the Nordic series before anyone else. Right now, you can test drive Overlander Network for free for three full days. Take the wheel at overlandernetwork.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the X Overland Podcast. I'm your host today, Jimmy Lewis, and with me is Matt Hopkins and Ryan Connolly. Ryan is our operations manager here. And Matt is our global logistics coordinator. These guys are getting to be familiar faces on the podcast. So I'm glad of it. Um, we've talked about a few different topics here recently. And today, however, we are talking about vehicle maintenance. So, right, I'm thinking back. Um, we, we just were talking about power and battery management and all that kind of thing. I think that might even play into the whole maintenance bit. Um, and before that... A global logistics, search and rescue. What else were we covering, Matt? Just seemed like a few days ago. Uh, uh, communications. Communications yeah. and comms, yeah. So I wonder if there's a maintenance component even to that. And I, I guess like what I'm trying to get at here is in looking at maintenance, vehicle maintenance for overlanders and anyone involved in vehicle-based recreation, we're, we're looking at uh, the big picture here. And you know, without getting too far into the weeds, it's, you know, how do you keep your rig running? How do you keep your kit working, your camping gear, you know, just that whole overlanding platform that's everything from an engine to a battery in your, uh, in your sleep system. For sure. So Matt. Yes, sir. You seem so excited about this episode today. And, uh. I confess, right? I really am that guy when it comes to vehicle maintenance, I, I am on the surface doing the best I can, but I have a lot to learn. So I, I'm definitely going to be asking you guys a lot of questions. And I, even, even this very question, like, which is perfect to start the podcast is where, where do we begin for vehicle maintenance? <clears throat> what kind of things are you thinking about? Well, I mean, there are vehicles and we all have different personalities. So a lot of it comes down to your personality and who you are and how you choose to maintain your vehicle. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read that book, The Zen Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I love that book. I yeah. read it. So you remember, uh, Jimmy, in that book, you got the guy that would just assume pay for it, get it done right, and have them take care of it. And the other guy who packed spare jets and spare needles so he can rebuild his carburetor on the side of the road and then tinker with it and maybe it failed a couple miles later but he was never mad about it he just that was how he learned so mm -hmm. we have different personalities and there's nothing wrong with either one of them it's just made preventative maintenance is a practice and it's something that you should do with your vehicle if you want it to last and you don't want it to fail on you while you're out in the in the in adventuring 
I just buy a Toyota so I don't have to maintain it. <laughs> Honestly, a lot, um, of a, a lot of people do. <laughs> it's you know, a little closer to the truth than it should be, but yes. You're, you you have a point, like as a former fishing guide, like, you know, the fly fishing guys, there's a reason they all buy Tundras because, you know, they're, they're not really known for taking good care of their vehicles, but they just go <laughs> and go and go those things, right? Yeah. So there is some truth to that. Yes. And I think to, to Matt's point, when he started talking about personality and vehicle maintenance, um, I immediately, I was starting to think of like the personality of the vehicles themselves, mm. uh, which sometimes match the buyer, right? So like someone's like, I'm going to get a vintage classic Defender, Land Rover Defender. That's the kind of guy who's a Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance guy. It's like, it's fun to tinker, tweak and mess with my rig. Yeah. Whereas, you know, someone like Ryan's like, I'm buying the Toyota and I'm really not going to think about it that much. Yep. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm uh, definitely guilty of assuming that the regular service maintenance schedule for my oil is 10,000 miles. Like that's pretty much how, it, when it actually happens, real story, I'm driving around for the last month going, man, my brakes are kind of grindy. Probably should do something about that. Maybe I'll schedule something in a week or so. Still grinding, grinding, grinding. I'm like, okay, I really got to schedule something. So it's a good thing. I'm this, this, this is very like, this is not my area of uh, pleasure. So I'm not that guy. I maintain because I have to. So definitely I'm not sitting here being an expert, but uh, it's something that's important. And unlike Matt, who loves his maintenance, he's the Zen guy. I'm the opposite. I'm, I think I'm right in between you guys. Like I appreciate the Zen and theory of all this, but the reality for me is find a really competent mechanic and take my rig and bike to him and make sure I don't break down. Yeah. Um, but even if that you're in that place, you have to learn enough to speak the language to whatever shop, dealership, service, right, you're working with. Yeah, and you want to find someone reliable too, I guess. If if that's going to be me, I I have a consistent place I take my truck to. They always do my work. It's here in Bozeman. I trust them because they, the beauty of having a mechanic do things, so I'm going to be the advocate for the mechanic in this case, is, is they see a hundred, a thousand of these trucks a month, a week. I, I see one. So the beauty of seeing one is I know my truck, but the problem is, is they know what's normal and I don't really know what's normal. So I love having my mechanic run through things. They'll see things I don't see. That's a wonderful point. And, and you said it too with uh, competence. You know, you got to build a trust. You got to build a rapport. Uh, I, I drive certain trucks that I don't personally do the maintenance on because I'm not a Volvo tech or I'm not a Caterpillar mechanic. But I build relationships with those people that can help me in those instances and take care of that stuff. But they get to know me. They know what my operation is. They know what I'm doing. And then I know also their level of efficiency because mm -hmm. you don't want to go to the guy that takes nine hours to do an oil change or to the guy that takes four hours to supposedly rebuild your transmission. Yeah. You know, you got to look at where those things are, where you said understanding the language. I kind of have a relative know-how on what should be acceptable versus what isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like just, just being able to speak the language of mechanics well enough so you can get done what you need to get done. And I, I'm going to make an analogy here. Um, so I have a bunch of bird dogs, right? Bunch of dogs and family myself. We have six, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. So it's, so to my point, you need to know when you need to involve a vet and when you don't. Right. So you're out there hunting with a bunch of dogs. Um, I've taken some basic first aid training stuff for canines. I have an elaborate kit with me in the field. 
I do as much patchwork as I can to maintain the dogs, but there are times when you know I need professional help. Mm. So when it comes to vehicles, I think it's kind of the same, right? Like there, there are certain things, if you can learn how to do them and you have enough of a shop at home and you invest in some tools, you can probably save yourself some money and learn a few things and keep it going. There are other things that you need to maybe recognize, I'm not qualified to do this. Yeah. Um, so what? Let, let's look at that maybe to start with, right? If you are in that world, you have a, you have a vehicle, you're wondering, you know, what can I DIY and what do I need to shop for? What are some basics to think about there? I think learning, learning to do the vehicle walk around of your own vehicle is critical. That first step, and maybe it's simply developing the awareness that I have a vehicle that might have issues and I won't know unless I look for them. So developing a discipline of doing the walk around, washing your truck simply so you can see what's underneath all the dirt. Is a, is a critical place to start. You don't have to be a mechanic to see something that's broken. That you might take your vehicle to a mechanic to fix. Right. But if you're not even looking, yep. okay. You know, that's great. Yeah. It, you, just simply keeping it clean. You're going to see what's going on. You're going to see where there might be issues. You don't have to be a mechanic to see a flat tire. And believe it or not, if your battery is consistently dead, it's not magic. There's an issue. There's something wrong. I've had a lot of people in my life tell me, ah, I don't know what's going on. It's a total mystery. I'm like, it it's dying. actually not a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, there's probably a few things that somebody that's qualified could really help you not have to go through this. So the some days it works, some days it doesn't, isn't just the riding on hope is a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Like I right away then what I'm picking up here is that for effective vehicle maintenance, mindset is key. Right. So at effect, like developing an effective mindset, one is which I'm hearing from you guys is you're, you're really paying attention mm -hmm. to things like Clay talks about listening to what your vehicle's telling you. Yeah. I've heard him say that a bunch of times. Right. And Tanner, uh, like just in the Nordic series, I was just watching and, and Tanner was talking about get your hands on things, you know, shake them, move them, feel them, see what's going on. Because you might look at something and it might look fine, but then you grab it and wiggle it and it's like, oh, this is coming loose. Totally. Right. Are there some kind of problem? Clay's driving and he's like, what's that noise? Where is that coming from? So Matt talking about the battery, my battery's been dead five times in a row. Probably an issue somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, so really like mindset wise, paying attention to things. Mm -hmm. And one way you can be doing that by cleaning regularly, you're looking like instead of just cleaning your vehicle look around, look underneath wheel wells, underneath the chassis, like get involved in that. Mm -hmm. And what, what kind of things are we looking for? Well, anything that's out of the ordinary, take notes. If you don't have a very good memory of, if you had a lot of things going on and a lot of us do anymore, and we have multiple vehicles or we're constantly letting someone else borrow our vehicles, have a good standard memory. Like with, with over the road trucks, we're required by law to do a pre-trip. Now, if you read the book and the details of what that pre-trip considered, of, you know, consisted of, am I getting on a creeper every day to crawl underneath that truck before I start it and drive it? Absolutely not. I'm using what experience I've had with that said truck, my overall experience in trucking, and putting it all together where you said looking around your truck. Is anything clearly broken? Did a wheel fall off? Sounds extreme. But things do happen. Yeah, even, yeah. Then what What sounds different? Mm -hmm. What smells different? Mm. Now, you, you may not think that, oh, what, what my car smells. 
We all know transmission fluid has a certain smell. Battery acid exploding under your hood, not knowing that I know that, you know, <laughs> has this unique smell. Gasoline, diesel fuel, they all have unique smells that after a while, if you smell a certain sweet smell, you might go, that's not normal. I've never smelled gas before in the cab or exhaust in the cab. Mm -hmm. Those are things that are showing that there's an issue somewhere, especially with these high mileage vehicles that we're getting to do two, three, four hundred or more thousand miles. Those things eventually will wear out and potentially cause an issue if you're not prepared for it. Yeah, to push on your mindset, the the fancy term is a normalcy bias, right? We tend to think, oh, everything's fine. And something, there's a weird noise. And you're just like, oh, well, whatever. It's just, it's just something, it's not a big deal. That even affects our vehicle maintenance. If you hear a weird sound, weird sound that might be a thing. You don't want to just assume it's nothing. Don't assume it's okay. So pay attention and then pursue it. Yeah, you know, this is something I love about overlanding. Uh, it is the mindset that helps you develop, which I find applicable in so many other areas of life, right? Like in, in some uh, training, like intruder training, uh, active shooter stuff that I did when I was an educator. Like that's the mindset is when something is out of the norm, yep. right? You don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Pay attention to it. And the reason I'm just bringing that up is like to your point, Ryan, is establish a normalcy for your vehicle, mm -hmm. what it smells like, what it sounds like, how it drives, and just try to get familiar with that and then be paying attention when anything's outside of those parameters. Yep. Yeah. And don't skip it. That's the thing where we, we tend to say, ah, it's no big deal. Yep. Don't do that. That denial part, that yep. noise coming from the back. I just yep. don't want to deal with that. I'm exactly. going to keep going. Yep. <laughs> and we skip it because well, it's expensive. Right. A lot of yeah. times you hear that noise, sure. you want to turn the radio up because you think if you ignore it, it'll just go away. Right. We're all adults here. We realize it doesn't go away and it probably gets worse. And then it probably gets more expensive down the road when you do have to eventually address it. So the biggest thing is we have YouTube. We have resources all around us where we can dive into more of what that is. But the biggest thing is taking the notes. I On this day, I noticed there was something a little bit different. You don't just write on a little notepad. Then when you go to a mechanic, you can be specific to say, I was smelling this in my car. Even if you have no clue what that smell was, that's going to give them a starting point mm. to go down the road and look for that smell mm. and to start to smell it. Because believe it or not, when you take your car to a mechanic, a lot of people get in that mindset. It was just in the mechanic. It's got to be fine. Mm. Mechanics will address the issue. No different than your doctor. Then They're not going through a complete head to toe and finding out blood tests, everything else. A lot of times you go in there saying, I've had headaches. They're going to go to that injury. You have a headache. They have no idea you have a broken finger. Right. right. <laughs> or you're an alcoholic or whatever it could right. be that's causing the headaches constantly. Right. So you need to be specific with that mechanic and then understand they may not have looked at the rear end or the front end or whatever. So... So, about so while we're talking about, you know, the possibility of bringing your vehicle into a shop for, for some kind of work to be done, whether it's routine maintenance or maybe a fix, right? Seeing something replaced, fixed. What are your thoughts on private shops versus dealerships? I can't say that on air. Me either. Okay. We, Fair enough. <laughs> we'll address a little bit. We'll totally get fired. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. This um, one needs to go for further approval. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should wait. But like, I think I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it is a question, you know, and, and, and here's, here's an answer that I know we won't uh, get kicked off no for. And that is if you buy a vehicle new and it's under warranty, right. You're going to have to take it to an actual dealership or, or at least a shop that's certified, certified. Yeah. in order to get warranty work done. Yeah. You start taking it outside of that. 
you void your warranty, things like that. So that might be a reason to use your dealership or a certified shop within the bounds of your warranty. Once you're outside of that, or you voided the warranty from something you've done to your truck, yeah. now you can take it wherever you want to take it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just some basic pros and cons maybe of, of one or the other. Yeah. I think Matt mentioned it already. Get to know your mechanic. Like this is a person who you are going to trust with the safety of your vehicle. It, it's someone you want to know and it's someone you want to have developed a trust for. So it's, it seems kind of weird, but having a, having a place you regularly go, I think is important. So maybe the first one was a bad experience. Go try another one. Ask for recommendations. Ask around. Get get the input of your community to help you find an, an, an authority, someone you can trust to then consistently look at your vehicle. If you're going to be like me and I don't want to be the one, I'm not, I didn't choose the Zen route. I'm going to choose someone who has those skills and I'm going to be consistent with bringing my vehicle to them. Yep. That makes sense. And don't fear it. That's one thing I want to stress a lot is that you just spend 50000 plus on a vehicle. For a lot of us, that's kind of spooky. We just gave $50,000, and a week later, the check engine light comes on. Yeah. Immediately, it's all of a sudden, it's a panic kind of sets in. An old friend of my father's told me once when I had, I, can't, I think I lost a transmission or something. I was like 16, and I was broke down in Ohio, and it was a long, drawn out, and I was freaking out. And he told me, he's like, hey, man, they make trucks every single day. <laughs> And I, it, that hit me where I was like, he's right. Yeah, maybe I can't afford the new truck, but it, this is tiny, tiny, tiny in the world of things that could really go wrong. And to just sit back and go, okay, this thing doesn't have a spirit. Mm-hmm. It, there's no hope driving this. It's literally fuel with oil. Matt is it. breaking my heart right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. You love truck? You love like, yeah, my, my beloved truck with a name and, you yeah. know. No. It's, <laughs> it's like when someone tells me my pet is just an animal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a different exactly. Just get off the podcast, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah, and I name my vehicles. I've got Stella sitting right out in the driver yeah. right now, too, and Stella, I pat her on the hood every now and then when we get through a hole and didn't get stuck. So there's a little hope in maybe my driving at times. But it's just a truck. But in the end of the day, well, it's, it's a machine. Yeah. It is a machine that, it, in sometimes unforeseen circumstances, where the brand new alternator's regulator goes out and now you have a total catastrophe, it happens. It happens, and don't be fear. And then the next step is, if you're not going to be the one to address it yourself, build that relationship with someone that can, so you can go to them, talk to them, and go, I don't know what happened. Can you please help me? Yeah. Yeah, and to our earlier concern, you know, that that could be a dealership service department, and if it's an excellent service department, if mm-hmm. you feel confident there and you like the people, and every time you bring in your rig, things get done well and right. Yep. Um, I Toyota is well known for the standards they maintain for their dealerships mm-hmm. and service departments. So, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing, or it could be a independent private mechanic. Uh, but make sure you trust that person or whatever business is working with your rig, kind of like you would find a doctor. Yeah. Right. Or anything like that. So we're like, okay. we talked about finding a broker. I, I mentioned that in the last podcast we did. If you're not a broker, we're talking just so people know we're talking a broker yeah. for shipping your vehicle overseas. Yeah. If you can't communicate with that person, that segues into our communication podcast. If you're nervous at all, yeah. go somewhere else. Yeah. You shouldn't feel stressed out with someone trying to help you in that aspect. So mm-hmm. feel comfortable with what you're doing because at the end of the day, pull the cord, 
go somewhere else. Yeah. There's dealerships almost every street corner now in most big cities mm-hmm. that you can probably make, especially in this, I mean, specifically what vehicles we're referring to in these these newer vehicles, you can mm-hmm. you can pretty much get help in a, more places than not. Okay, so we're heading out, let's say we're heading out for a weekend or a spring break, a spring break trip, you know, down to Utah, we're going to go to Moab and tour around or something like that. Or maybe like think of other use cases, maybe you're a hunter, it's hunting season, you're heading to the Missouri breaks for a couple weeks. Um, What kind of things are we checking out vehicle maintenance wise before we disembark? Well, what are you doing? Your basics, right? We'll just start with the basics, the things you can do in your driveway. Yeah, yeah, there's exactly. Bunch, there's a bunch of things that you can pull out of your engine that tell you some things. So yes, right. What are those things? I, I've been called it a time or two, but I think they're called a dipstick. <laughs> I think there was another term. That, are there multiple but, dipsticks in this truck? There's a, there's three of them sitting right here right now. And <laughs> Check your dipstick. <laughs> check your dipstick. Okay. No? Right. All right, which dipsticks do we need to check? <laughs> well, it depends on your vehicle. So it comes down, just understand your vehicle for what you have and there's many resources on how to help you understand some of the basics of your vehicle if you are that guy that has that 1990s defender that you know might have its particular problems yeah i'd probably jump on a forum and learn why do these things do these little finicky things that they do and then if you're running a forerunner like every one in three people i think in bozeman montana have yeah pretty much I or a subaru one yeah. you slide off the road your chance to hit a forerunner are pretty good yeah. <laughs> right another right. forerunner yeah another one so just understand some of the basics of your vehicle some certain vehicles you can check the transmission fluid where others you can't but mm-hmm. generally amongst most every vehicle that i know other than a tesla which we don't talk about on this show straight yeah you not can yet check yet. the oil from checking the dipstick and yeah. understand what you are checking. Yeah. yeah. Find it. Find your oil dipstick. It is listed in your owner's manual. Mm-hmm. These are things these are okay. things. Okay. The, the DIY stuff is in your owner's manual. That maybe that's a good place to like uh, to figure out what you like, can do hey, DIY and what you should take. I can look this yeah. up. The owner manu- owner's manual tells me where the oil dipstick is is something that I am encouraged by the OEM to inspect. Yeah, and I know, you know, we we run Pennzoil here and I, I was astonished, you know, researching that product and just learning about like how sophisticated some of the oils become, uh, especially like Pennzoil has a green program now for producing oil and recycling it. And yeah, that when you look at the nuances of all of that, it's like, wow. Um, so what I'm curious about, since we're on the subject of dipsticks and oil, where we live in Montana in the summer, it can be 105 degrees and mm. the winter, it can be 40 below. Mm. Should we be considering switching the viscosity of our oil for the season? That's a great question. Matt. Or where we're going to go in the world. I don't know. I don't have a good opinion on that. Okay. Well, it, it depends on your manufacturer of that engine. Um, you definitely want to look at your owner's manual because there are suggestions from your man, from your manufacturer saying if you are generally in these colder climates, we recommend a certain weight of oil and a certain viscosity of oil because it's going to help the engine start better. Mm. Once the engine's at operating temperature. A lighter viscosity in cold weather, is that typical? A lighter weight. Lighter weight. Lighter, lighter weight. weight. Yeah. You want to keep your viscosity and your base levels. There's a lot of parameters with your oil, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's that first number where you see uh, w that's a weight or 5w or 10w or 15w sometimes 20 i mean there's all different kinds of oils your rear end the oil w is that is a w stand for weight yes 
Sweet. This reminds me of other podcasts we've done with you guys where the lights just come on for me. <laughs> let's hang it up. Let's call it there. I think we had a good day, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're good. That was a win. Okay, so that, that's the weight of the oil we're talking about. Yep, that's yep. 0, 15, whatever, W. Yeah. Okay, and then hyphen what? Look at your look at your manufacturer and see which weight it's recommending for certain temperatures. Sometimes you can get away with up to, you know, 20 below zero to 110 above maybe. I don't know the exact spec with one type of weight oil because it's not conducive to say, it's going to be 40 below this week. I better put some low weight oil in my truck. Yeah, right, right. It's probably going to manage and hopefully it's not going to be 40 below more than a couple hours throughout that day and it's going to warm up a scotch. But if you're up in the Arctic, a lot of these guys are running many different styles of maintenance right. programs because they need to generate heat. Just like so if you were in the yeah. desert somewhere in sure. Saudi or somewhere. In yeah. The, that's where you lived. You need more cooling. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different cooling factors where you're not worried about your, you know, your uh, air conditioner working while you're working up in Tuk Tuk Tuk. Right, right. <laughs> it's probably not going to be used very much. But, it, but if I'm doing a, a winter overlanding trip to Tuk Tuk Tuk, I might be thinking of setting up my engine oil for those parameters. Yeah, you yeah. Know, for that class. Especially because you're going to do, your, how many miles is it? It's like thousands of miles. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a couple oil changes in that in Arctic there. and you might experience extreme yeah. Arctic air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, that that helps out. Right. But, so maybe that's worthwhile. Maybe I don't do my own oil change. Like if we're going straight up, I'm just, at this point, we want to check our oil. So on my, before I take off on my weekend okay. where I'm going to be out in the gotcha. woods and I'm not coming yeah. back, it, it would be a good idea to see now if I'm low on oil versus finding it out 100 miles into the backcountry. So again, in your context of pre-trip, let's pull that oil dipstick and see what we see. Checks out. And and what kind of activities burn more oil in a vehicle? So like if I'm going to go four-wheeling and I'm going to be in four-low, you know, pulling steep hill climbs, if I'm pulling a camper... Like, cause I'm thinking of modern vehicles, probably, you know, managing oil very well. Like if you didn't check the oil very often. Okay. One, you shouldn't be losing oil. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> well, oil is not a consumable. Now you did say gas. You did say losing oil. Cause there's right? a difference between losing oil and burning oil. Now I truly I'm talking about yeah. this is another episode <laughs> cause this is a dark rabbit hole. I think what we want to make sure we're covering is that you do have enough oil on that and then create a schedule if you are for some reason going through more oil than you should be. That's more a problem. oil being any oil at all. Yeah. yeah. Most yeah. engine manufacturers will have a tolerance at 10, 20, 30,000 miles on how much oil consumption you should have. Mm-hmm. Certain new motors, when they're breaking in, might have a set of consumption. And then when an engine gets older, it may start to consume because the piston rings are wearing out and oil is now getting past that piston in the liner and it's causing it to burn. It's going up and combusting on top. So without getting any further into that, let's just make sure we check our oil. Mm-hmm. It's within the safe margin, mm-hmm. which is the little crosshatch version on most all dipsticks. Sometimes you'll just see a low line or a full line. So let's just make sure that you have the proper oil in there from the manufacturer and you have enough on your dipstick. And if for some reason there's a lot less than every other time you check, that's when you address it to your mechanic to say, hey, right, my oil is disappearing. Burning more oil than it should be it's or dis- losing it or something. Yeah. It's disappearing. That's a sign of a problem. Yeah. Okay. Because if there's a puddle in your ground that's on, the, on your garage floor, that's where the oil is well, and, and And a lot of people, you know, have mentioned to me always, you know, just keep an eye, look under your vehicle. Sure. You know, yeah. and other than like air conditioned drainage. Mm-hmm. Um, just be paying attention. Is anything leaking under there? 
when you're parked at the grocery store or wherever for a few hours, you know, and then you always just get in the habit of that. Sure. Just glancing underneath. Hey, what's that really cool thing that CBI makes that we put underneath all of these trucks? Oh, like the skid plate? A skid plate. Fancy skid Guess plate. what's really good at catching oil that's dripping? It's true. It's full of dirt that's soaking it up so like when a sponge. you drop it, you you take it off, you look at underneath and see you, what's going you on. You might not see that puddle on the ground like the old school yeah. days where your drain plug is right there. So just be conscious of how much oil you have in there. Generally, a good running engine from your interval, if you're doing 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 or more in the interval changes, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be losing any oil. And if you are losing, it's very, very minimal. Enough that you can barely even tell maybe it's a quart, depending on the age of your engine. Uh, that's what I was looking for with If you're adding significant amounts of oil in the one interval, you have an issue. Yeah. I was a quart low after 10,000 miles on my 2010 Tundra. One quart. Yeah. Uh, 120,000 miles on the truck. So there's a little real world uh, bad example of... No, that helps. Uh, that's but, that's uh, but that's that's and what I was I'm trying to get. I didn't have right? a leak. Like, I didn't have a drip. Where are the red flags? Why? Like with typical vehicles, yeah. right? Now, if I have that classic Defender, and I know that it burns X number, yeah. right? Then I'm probably packing along a little bit of extra oil. Totally. The biggest thing is knowing it's, it's yeah. the blood in your system, right there. As long as you have blood in there, even if it's the wrong blood, it's going to be better than having no blood. It's good to know. So I can mix my five W with my zero W. You shouldn't, but if you're in an absolute pinch and it's either you have no oil or you have it, I would just do whatever Go you can right. to get it in there. But then I would probably do a change as soon as you get back to civilization. <laughs> you definitely Couldn't voided know. your warranty, right? Well, <laughs> we're not going to get into warranties. That goes to the yeah. dealership. We don't want to talk My about truck that. is far past his warranty. So. Okay. So kind of like- okay, Oil. We checked okay, our oil. Okay. What about- Now, I th I'm thinking these two are kind of similar as how you think about them, how you maintain them, how you check them. Radiator. Radiator fluid, mm. antifreeze. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, what is radiator fluid? It is antifreeze and water. Why is it not straight water? Because it would freeze. Why is it not straight antifreeze? That I don't know. It would still freeze. Huh. They need to be mixed. That's what you see when you see a pre diluted 50 yeah. 50, or you just see straight concentrate. Mm. That is for you to determine because if you've ever seen those little testers that have the little balls inside, what they're doing is checking the, uh, I, th I think it's checking the density of the water. Specific gravity. It's, it's a gravity, yeah. yeah. So you're, it's telling you how much, it's telling you how low of temperature your radiator fluid can go to before it will freeze up. Yeah. Do you have a 50-50 water and radiator fluid or do you have 60-40, 70-30, whatever it may be? Now, it's critical that you always have it topped off. There'll be a min and max on most all reservoirs in right. some fashion on the side. You should never be burning coolant mm -hmm. generally you'll lose it through maybe a, a blown head gasket or a leaky hose or a, generally cool lines when they go they're not going to seep for very long they're going to eventually just burst True. heater lines your heat that comes out of your cab is coolant running through mm -hmm. a uh totally speaking heat exchange heat, heater, heater, core, sorry, heater core yeah in your car and that's where the heat's coming from so there's a lot of fluid running through your block and your head and everything so that's a tight concealed system it doesn't mix with water, or sorry, it doesn't mix with fuel, it doesn't mix with oil. Right. It stays isolated to itself, so it should stay theirs. It also goes to your transmission for a transmission cooler, too. So it goes all over the place, mm -hmm. except on the ground, hopefully. But, but doesn't yeah. mix. <laughs> and doesn't burn. And let's just say, like, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, never check your radiator fluid level antifreeze if it's hot. Right. No. If your engine's hot, if the 
radiator's hot, you want to make sure that is 100% cool. Yes. Or it's going to explode in your face, correct? It, it, and this it, yeah. have pressure and pop. Yes. Yeah. This okay. is a reservoir that typically doesn't have a dipstick. It's like Matt said, you yeah. look at the side of the clear-ish container mm-hmm. to see if it's high or low. Yeah. And it'll have two numbers, like a cold a cold high and a and a warm high. So or yeah, yeah. As it expands in the low. in the chamber there, so you also a lot of these newer vehicles, you can't even pop that cap open and look. Right. It's not like the old school days where there's a big old cap that says warning on it. Don't turn up. You know, don't yeah. open up when it's hot. Yeah. Sometimes you just have the reservoir where there's that's the only way to actually get cooling into that, which is more of a safety feature, I believe, is why they're doing it that way. Probably. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So Oils. Oil. Coolant. Coolant. Transmission. Transmission fluid. Depending on the transmission. Uh, certain transmissions, in like an automatic transmission, you a lot of vehicles have a dipstick for that as well. Mm-hmm. And the way you check transmission fluid, so obviously you would check engine oil. We should clarify that. Then it's got to be off. Mm-hmm. If it's off, where does that oil go? Down into the oil pan, and that's where your dipstick is going down into your oil pan. It's like the little swimming pool of oil. How much is in the pool? That's where it measures from. Mm-hmm. Your transmission fluid, you need to put your parking brake on and put your vehicle in neutral. I believe this is on most all automatic vehicles because that gives you the accurate amount of transmission fluid that is supposed to be in that transmission. Because mm. if you were to check it in a lot of cases when the vehicle's off, it's going to look like you have way more transmission fluid than you should because transmission fluid is purely lubricating all of the little ports and it's also creating pressure so you can shift gears. Mm. What would you see gauge-wise if you were having transmission fluid issues? Would, would your transmission start to run hotter? Would you see that on a gauge? Nope. We don't generally have transmission gauges unless it's okay. a modified vehicle that has one added. Some of the newer, I think, Chevy Duramax diesels have transmission temperature gauges, but it's mostly for a towing, towing uh, applications. You're going to notice erratic shift patterns when you're having a transmission it, 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 or issue. So maybe it's not holding into gear like it should be, or you felt it really lurched hard when it shifted once or twice. Mm-hmm. And then the smell. I can you can pull out your dipstick and smell that oil. If it smells really burnt, that means there's something slipping inside that's causing that oil to just kind of create a lot of friction. So there's more of a smell aspect and then the look, of course, if there's no oil on the dipstick, well there you go. You probably leaked it at some point. Do you remember I don't know off the top of my head, what's a typical mileage um cycle for transmission fluid change? Depends on how so that's to me that's controversial. Oh really? I never change transmission or gearbox oil. So like gearbox, rear ends, front ends. Yeah. I don't change it unless it's leaking or that particular part failed and I need to put new in there. Okay. I've always been a believer of that oil is used to the components that are in there. There's certain fragments of kind of metal that have worked together. And every time I've changed fluid in a gear driven uh, device like that, like a transmission rear end, it goes out a week later. Interesting. And I don't know, I, it's, there's probably old guys that would agree with me. There's yeah. probably new theories that would say sure. that's completely wrong. You should flush it every two minutes, every 2,000 yeah. miles or whatever. Yeah. The hardest part is it, it's hard to get it all out. When they say you do a transmission flush yeah. or a coolant flush or a brake fluid reservoir flush, what they're doing is they're pushing other fluid through to get all that bad stuff out. Hmm. But it's so hard to really get all of that bad stuff out that sometimes I think it's useless. And this, uh, I know like just looking at things we do around here, it seems to me if we've like, you know, we were just in Iceland doing all these water crossings and I think standard practice then is to like change. I want to say like the differential oil, right? Anything that could have some water 
get in there. Yeah, it, that there's the application right there. If you are sinking this thing in water a lot, there are breathers now. Yeah, transmit. Right. Everything's got a breather, so it can it doesn't just like break inside. It's got to breathe and you know contract. Right. Um. Yes, if you're getting water in there, that is going to be a problem. I think even ARB cells. Kind of like breather. snorkels, like diff breathers. Yep. So yeah, it gets they do. higher, they so do. you're not going to get water in there because it should be a sealed unit. Yeah. If you check out uh, our Masterclass build series on the network, yep. we we actually put one on the third gen. Yep. Every vehicle, basically, that we build gets a diff breather kit because we plan on fording. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. If it's leaking or there's something that, if it's dry and it's the way it's always been, it's kind of a don't broke, don't mess with it. That's the way I've always looked at that. But if you're doing something that is not traditional for that vehicle- then you might have a different interval and when you may want to change the fluid and do an ins- inspection on the gears and everything else around it. Mm. Rear ends are way more simple than a transmission. A totally. transmission's got way tinier, smaller orifices and tolerances that as soon as it's not happy, it's your game over pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So while we're on the subject of fluids, seems to me, right, we're looking at oil, we're looking at uh, antifreeze, uh, transmission fluids. Uh, any other key items concerning fluids we should be paying attention to? Blinker fluid. Your palinker fluid is, yeah, how much Critical. water is floating in your headlight bucket because there's a hole and crack on top of it. That's become a meme at this point. So. Yeah, right. So Not yeah. blinker fluid. It's not a thing. Not a thing. Well, brake fluid is one of your brake. kind of last fluids that you're you're dealing with other than rear end. Brake fluid. Yeah, that's, that's a real important thing. one. Yeah, right I was going to make this clear. We've left the realm of stupid and brake fluid's a real thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and remember, your braking system's a hydraulic system, so it's going from reservoir to the applied brake, back to the reservoir again. It's just being transferred back and forth in a really slow rate. So shouldn't have any orifices getting dirt in unless there's something broken or leaking, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be leaking. Mm-hmm. Usually when your brakes start to leak, your brakes go out relatively quick afterwards. You're not going to have a very long leak in a brake fluid reservoir before you have a catastrophe. So Yeah, like the total volume of brake fluid is like a quart. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not, not much. much. Yeah, once it goes through the whole set, well, there, sorry, there's power steering fluid too because okay. we do have power steering, but that's yeah. another one of the same things. It's only using so much between the gearboxes and the reservoir mm-hmm. that unless there's a leak or there's a way for dirt or water to get in, you're not going to really address that much until either a part fails. Generally, I'll always replace a power steering pump alone before I ever thought about replacing the fluid. Sure. Maybe there's something to that where if I change the fluid earlier, but those tiny little orifices, it's hard to get all that oil out without really tearing everything apart and dissecting it and then putting it back together again. This is like like my what I'm taking away here is that for, for the user, say, who goes out and buys a new vehicle and they're going to keep it 100,000 miles, mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to go through to service intervals. One thing I heard from you guys earlier is read your owner's manual or at least look it over. Totally. Like that is a super valuable resource. Take the time, do that. Then you know when to service your vehicle, what needs servicing, how to communicate with whoever's doing the service work. But it sounds like if you have a a relatively new vehicle and you are following the owner's manual recommended service intervals, other than checking the engine oil before you head out, a lot of these other things we're talking about you're probably not going to have to mess with. You might, unless you know what you're doing, you might make things worse if you go tinkering around with those things. Yeah, and they're getting so much better now, unless there's a particular recall on a particular vehicle that had an issue with one thing or the other. Yeah, you can go a couple hundred thousand miles without changing a lot of those components or fluids, and the vehicle's going to be just fine. Um, And there's also the one additional fluid if you are in a new diesel truck in the United States that's above 2013 is diesel exhaust fluid. Def fluid. That's a little blue cap next to the green cap on a diesel vehicle 
or sometimes it's under the hood. But that is urea. That is what they're using in the the recirculation system, the the emission system in the truck to reburn the soot to keep your NOx levels down in your exhaust. I see. Yeah, so you're going to want to make sure that's topped off yep. before you head out. And windshield washer fluid, of course. There you go. Uh, yeah. washer fluid. Simple and, as and that is. In my truck, that's illegal. If you, you could shut down and put out a service if you're out of fluid or your wiper yeah. light blade's broken, because it's a safety hazard. You can't and, see. Okay. <laughs> Here's a, you know, a real simple yeah. one that took me a while to figure out, but I just started doing it. Um, I usually, at the end of every winter, I replace my windshield wipers. Sure. And Good. I can't believe the difference that makes. Nice. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And it's like, it's just one of those things that, I don't know, for years, I just kept going with whatever I had and maybe ran them too long. But you think of all the ice, at least in Montana, yeah. they take a beating going yeah. in the wintertime. And so, and all of a sudden your visibility improves, lots more clarity there. So, And methanol wears out the blades after a while. You get the squeak going on. and But yeah. also remember too, if you had 30 above, because that's all you found in September to put in your windshield washer fluid reservoir, your car's parked outside. Let's get some 20 below in there if you're living in the colder climates, because if not, you might not have wipers the rest of the season because it's frozen in the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So just like the whole thinking winterization, which brought me back around to something I was considering earlier, which is diesel trucks and gelling. Mm. Um, We were talking about oils, right, and prepping for the winter, maybe Mm -hmm. changing your engine oil with diesel trucks without getting too far into the weeds with diesel technology, but just you own a diesel truck, what are some things you should be thinking of in the winter? Winter in, <laughs> in the summer, right? Like all the different types of diesels. And- I know. I So I have a plow truck that's a 2001 Ford F-350. It starts when it's cold, but doesn't really like the- Like how you said that. So <laughs> I always plug it in. Like literally it's plugged in all the time, except for in the summer. So I know it will start when it's warm. Does not like to start cold. So, but Matt is the diesel guy. So let's defer to Matt. Well, it, it's it's like anything. You, you create these schedules. You just kind of continue to maintain your vehicle the best you can and understand why are you doing this? Because it seems really ridiculous to spend $15 on a jug of something that you throw into your diesel tank and maybe never see any benefit from it. But what we're doing with diesel additives specifically, and this is diesel, not gas. Gas has a different type of way to look at things if you're going to try to do something to the fuel. Uh, But on diesel fuel, yeah, if it's cold weather, you don't want your fuel to gel, which is when, (laughs) if I freaking remember this right, it's the paraffin in the diesel fuel that's kind of solidifying and turns into literally a jello at a certain temperature. Mm -hmm. Now, most cold weather states will upgrade their fuel to a more premium fuel that is usually good till 20. Like a winter blend. Yeah, right. exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, but the good thing about if you again, if you're keeping it for a hundred thousand miles, throw diesel fuel in it, let her go. You're going to be okay. If it's an older truck that you bought with two hundred thousand, because we all know I was telling stories earlier about four or five eight hundred thousand mile trucks mm-hmm. that are still going down the road, you want to take care of your components as much as possible. And this ultra low sulfur diesel fuel that we're using now, that removing that sulfur is removing the lubricity of diesel fuel. Mm. So an additive, also being an antigel, is l- lubricating our diesel fuel better, which is going to help all of our wear components, injectors, um, pumps, pump gears, putting a nice uh, lubricant to help that diesel fuel go through there faster is going to keep from that stuff wearing down or failing down the road. Yeah. And that like brings me back to mindset for this topic of vehicle maintenance overall, which is, you know, you do this a for reliability and safety when you're out there to not have breakdowns, not have problems. 
and also for the longevity of your vehicle. So it lasts longer, you get more value out of what you invested in. Yeah, shoot, I probably just devalued my Tundra by admitting that publicly, didn't I? See, but you can help it out. You may have, someone's gonna be like, can I delete that from the podcast? I regularly change my oil. <laughs> See, like, <laughs> just think of your additive as like a Flintstone vitamin, or for you guys, like Metamucil. <laughs> oh, man. <That> good. <laughs> but he's not wrong as you, you creep up. Did you write that down before? <laughs> Nah, that one just kind of came. I hey, I'm not Metamucil. I'm AG1. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's all it is. Is you're just taking care of what they have for you out there. That was good. Huh? <laughs> yeah, but while we're going, you know, Ryan and I are going for the longevity and the reliability <laughs> factor. We got to take care of our bodies as well as we can. Give me another Coke. I'll be <laughs> Yeah. So okay. So the but the you know that's going to help us out with uh, with a diesel engine for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're you know if you're an overlander and you live in Florida and you have a diesel truck and you're heading north in the winter, mm-hmm. you want to be thinking about these things so you don't wind up yeah. gelled up on the side of the road. Yeah. Remember the lubricity though, because there's there's ones that tailor more towards anti gel. There's some that tailor more towards lubricity, but then there's always that middle one, just like an oil that'll work for most extremes. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really need to get carried away with a super, super cold one if it's only three days a month or three days a year. These sort of additives you're talking about. Additives or oil. You can find that it's pretty universal. It's going to go across the board. There's lots of brands out there. So just like anything, do your homework, do a little research, see what everybody's using and why. Yeah. Okay. And that would be for engine oil, like you said, oil like yeah. engine oils yep. or additives for diesel. And I also heard you saying if you have a diesel truck, you love it, you want to take care of it and keep it as long as possible. Um, the additives are not a bad idea yeah. given given what we have going on with the fuels we're using today. Yeah. They're not selling us fuel to help us. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. They're trying to help the environment. There's no yeah. Us. They they can care less about how our engine really performs on yeah, it. They're yeah. meeting codes and protocols and EPA like ethanol stuff. with motorcycles yeah. and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we want to do what we can to take care of our vehicle outside of what they're providing us. That makes sense. Cool. Um so I think that's all the fluids though. Those are all the fluids. It's kind of chopped, other than the, you know, the water floating in your headliner. Right. Well, we talked about (laughs) diesel, but while we're on the subject of fuels, uh, you have like, I have a 6.4 liter gas engine in the power wagon, Mm -hmm. and I've been told nothing less than Mm mid-grade for that engine. Mm -hmm. Now, when I had my Tundra, I just put anything in there and it just kept running. Right. Um, But with this, I've heard it's a little fussier. Sure. So what are some thoughts on gasoline engines and octanes and what we're doing there as far as maintenance and just taking care of our vehicles? I'm not enough <laughs> of a mechanic to tell you why one or the other. Uh-huh. So in when it comes to octane, I choose manufacturer recommendation at that point. Okay. Um, I know I had an older vehicle that I could mess around with. And if I went too low of octane, I'd get knocking in the engine. You're like, okay, something's not happy about this. So it matters. And the engine is built, tuned for a certain octane. So this isn't something you can like turn a screw and fix. Like, no, it's, this is what it's made to do. So you got to follow your manufacturer rec on octane. That checks out. Yeah. And like batteries, bigger isn't always better. Yeah. It's just because it says 91 doesn't make it cooler than 89. It's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Manufacturer's recommendation, stick with it, which was a little hard for me with fuel prices the past couple of years, I was really like, do I really need that? Yeah. Right. But I'm hearing, yeah, yeah, yeah. you do. There's a few additives in the market for gas 
I don't really stand behind a lot of that stuff. The biggest thing that I'd like to address is that if you have a vehicle or cans of fuel, because a lot of us are big into fuel storage for our okay. overnighting, sure. yeah. fuel stabilizers. Sure. Fuel will kind of more or less get stale if it sits for a long period of time. So researching fuel stabilizers to kind of help that fuel stay as fresh as possible, because mm. it comes down to the combustion. Because what does it take to make a gas engine run? Fuel, combustion. air, and spark. Yeah. What's in a diesel? air and fuel. There's no spark plug in a diesel engine. It's just that combustion. So you want that good lubricity. You want that combustion rate. Whereas that's where like the octane and the gas, the higher octane is going to, it's usually more an application of a yeah. higher RPM running engine. So if you right. have a hot rotted motor or a six right. or a big block, yeah. they want you to be in that higher octane rating because it's that faster vaporization of the fuel when it's combusting in the combustion chamber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. And um and I I've heard you know fuels today they they don't last very long. Like Specifically, that, gas is worse than diesel, from what I've understood too. Is like yeah, gasoline. A gasoline engine about. you can't store it for very long. I mean you can, but it just won't be the same gas it was when it was fresh. Yeah. So fuel stabilizers. If you know, even if you have jerry cans, you're yep. always you know taking jerrys around and you're not using them, but they're full of fuel. Put some stabilizer in there. Yep. Yeah, and, and a little point to where do we get our fuel? Because we generally go to our normal wherever is convenient for us. I mean, right. fuel is so convenient where they build a town pump across the road from a town pump across the road from a town pump. Because yeah. it's easier to make a right than a left, and they're going to create business there. So buy your fuel. This is my rule of thumb I've always done. Buy your fuel where there's a lot of fuel being sold. Mm-hmm. Now, this yes. is tricky when you're in foreign countries at times, when you see a guy with five gas cans in the back of his truck selling fuel for twice as much because you're 300 more miles from the next fuel stop. Right. Know where that gas came from. I'm a big advocate, even though it's more expensive, and this is the trucker in me, but I go to big truck stops generally when I'm in the U.S. because they're flowing thousands of gallons a day. Right. Whereas mom and pop's on the corner because they have good burritos. They might get a fuel truck there once a week or every two weeks, if that. Yeah, that's that good fuel point. may have old tanks, dirt, water eventually getting in. I've seen more issues with people that are getting fuel from more sketchy areas, especially mm -hmm. farm trucks. Yeah. They have that old tank they got at an auction somewhere 30 years ago that's actually got a foot of water in the bottom of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know why I blew my injectors out. Well, I have an idea. <laughs> I, I, I have very little international travel, so I don't know, Matt, you can probably speak to this more than me, but we, we should have someone on the podcast that has done this game of chasing fuel throughout the world because mm -hmm. they probably learned a ton of tricks. Yeah, I think- How to that, identify good fuel. That would be an episode Yeah, right there. I can't speak to that. Yeah, we should. I, I'm going to put that on the list, though. That would be a very useful topic. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Especially in the diesel world. I, I feel like diesel tolerance is a lot lower than gas, where you can run some pretty crap gas yeah. in these vehicles. Really? And I would have guessed the opposite. Well, diesel is now getting more particular, of course, because they have all the filtration systems with the DEF systems and the oh, PF systems. Sure. So they get plugged more often if they're running a bad fuel. That's why I'm talking more about the additives, huh. where when they talk about the old biodiesel days, when that was a new thing and people were running old cooking oil and yeah. their old 5.9 Cummins. Well, right. You could throw water at a 5.9 Cummins and it almost start. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they had a pretty low tolerance or a pretty high tolerance for abuse, whereas the new ones, most all new vehicles don't. Interesting. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna switch topics here as far as like what we're talking about maintaining to starter batteries. Okay, because um, that's one you know I'll just share my experience and we'll build off from there uh, because we are in Montana um, and it gets as cold as it does, and because I will often find myself doing what I love to do in extremely remote areas. About every five years, I'll replace my starter battery. Hmm. 
just to make sure it's mm-hmm. you know bomb proof is as reliable as I can make it. Uh, so what are some thoughts on that battery maintenance and when to replace and what to replace with? You could do a lot by just cleaning your terminal terminals. Um, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, I don't do it enough. I never do it enough, but it's something that you can basically take a tired battery that's trying to push through a bunch of corrosion and give it some more legs by cleaning up that connection. So take things apart, scrub them off and put them back together again. And you'll add, I don't know, there's no number, but you'll add life to your old battery by removing some of the resistance. Okay. That makes sense. Any kind of particular like um, fluids or like lubricants or anything you would put on to those terminals? Like You can. Um, I like dry contacts, honestly, but sometimes we'll stick the dielectric grease in there. Don't, I don't, I don't have a great like, uh, study that shows when dielectric grease wins and when it doesn't. I, okay. But get clean them up. Yeah. Just cleaning them up can make a difference. Yeah. And understanding that that corrosion you're seeing that's pushing through is think of your water in your yard. You've got 10 holes in your hose and your car's parked on it. You're trying to force all that battery power out of there really, really fast to start your vehicle. It's going to force it through all those little restrictions, which is going to tire that battery out. It's going to make your starter work harder. So you're putting exponential wear on everything else because of literally a dirty contact point. And that means your starter too. People forget that that does connect down to your starter, which is right on the ground that Mm -hmm. gets covered in dirt and grease and oil. That's a good point. It's a pain to do that. That may be where you want to go into a mechanic shop and say, can you guys pull my ground cables off, my battery terminals off and clean them maybe every 100,000 miles. You'll find your car starts better. Everything's operating better. Your voltage is staying higher and your battery, you're going to get more life out of your battery. And this is a podcast for vehicle maintenance for overlanders and people going on vehicle-based adventures which is a different set of needs that you need to convey to whatever shop you're working with. Sure. In other words, like they might be trying to save you money. So instead of replacing that starter, maybe when they should, given what you're going to do, they're, they're thinking, well, you know, worst case scenario is breaks down here. You're in town. You're fine. We're looking at doing a lot of preventative maintenance. So we don't have the breakdown when mm-hmm. we're in remote areas. Right. Totally. Okay. So that's where like with the battery, that would be, what I'm talking about, like just about every five years, making sure I replace it. Um, yep. What about starters and alternators? Because as vehicles get older and they don't start, you have that situation where you're like, my vehicle won't start. Yeah. It's usually battery, starter, alternator. It seems like one of those three. Yeah. So, so start, around maintenance. Do this. Start with this. Okay. Definitely like the first thing to do if your car won't start is just check your ground connection. Like mm-hmm. often just a, a marginal ground connection will totally kill it. The battery is actually fine. Mm-hmm. It just can't feed the starter enough energy because the ground connection came a little bit loose. You mean the cable, like the, the black, the, the black, black cable <laughs> that's yep. on the battery, the there. one that's on the battery, like okay. right there. If you have a problem right there, and it will just—it's crazy how little it takes. If just a little bit of a wiggle, if you can move it, that's not tight enough. Whoa. Okay, I think I remember a moment in the wall fall family series yeah where you know they had trinity the tricked out tundra amazing but it wouldn't start yeah and clay was radio they were you know communicating it turned out i think to be exactly what you're describing common super common and it was like yay day is saved in a very simple way 
Okay, so check the ground. And it was because earlier that week you put a new whatever it was in the cab and forgot to tighten it down. Sure. It's not, you know, this isn't necessarily always a big failure in the OEM part. It's just because you, you might have forgot to do it and the wrench is still sitting there next to the engine compartment. You're right. Where you close the hood on it because you just... Never done that before. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know how many tools are in between radios and intercoolers and pickup trucks because they fell and they never found it. We get 10 mil. I know. So that's where they those all tools are. come from on the roadside. I'm like, where did this come from? Yeah. Um, okay. So check the ground. Yep. And then what? Uh, batteries, starters, alternators, dead vehicle, preventative maintenance. So the rest of yours that you have to figure out is the alternator putting out that power that your battery is requesting. And is your starter plunging that flywheel the way it's supposed to to turn that vehicle on, to turn the motor over. The tests that you can do with those are sometimes you can go and get an uh, amperage test at your local AutoZone or O'Reilly's. Most of these uh, auto parts stores will do it for free. They'll come outside, they'll plug it in, have you run through a couple of tests, and it'll show how hard your battery's working versus how hard your alternator is helping it. And that's usually where you can start. That's a pretty easy one. Anybody can do that. Uh, starters are generally when you start feeling it going out. I've had starters last 500,000 miles. I've had them last a week. Yeah. I've heard that, that mm-hmm. it's, it's relative, mm-hmm. right? Because there isn't a, a yep. gold yeah. standard. They just die. Yep. Well, cause you have a starter and a solenoid. The solenoid is where the electricity is going into, to create, it's a little gear is all it is. It plunges out of that starter when you want it to and spins really hard and fast to turn your motor over. And then it retracts back in and waits until you need to start it again. It's not always working. But you've done it enough times or if you had weak batteries or a weak alternator and you're constantly jumping things back and forth, everything's getting whooped. So upgrading, if you've got your 150,000 miles out of it and it's time to replace a battery maybe or something else, consider if you have the funds at that time to replace it all and get it all a fresh start. Yeah, that makes sense. I've replaced starters in Fords. I've never replaced a starter in Toyota. They're a bear. I, I did a 94 Ford run, 92 Forerunner. Yeah. If I never do one again, it's okay. Yeah, that was the most miserable. Yeah. yeah. I don't even want to talk about it. So, and okay. So, uh, another major component I'm thinking about, um, are shocks. Yeah. And, and I guess these are where like, not so, I mean, and to some degree there's maintenance here, maybe I, depending upon the shock. Most shocks are, but you don't do anything to them. Mm-hmm. They're either broken and you can't fix it and you replace it. Very few are rebuildable. The new fancy ones are rebuildable, but... Yeah. Even though I still haven't done it yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And they do just wear out, especially like, you know, around Montana, we have all these corrugated roads we're driving yeah. and just the shocks are just getting yep. pounded, right? So, I mean, I noticed like with my Tundra, I got around 75,000 miles. And when I just replaced the shocks, yeah, it changed everything. That's cool. You know, ride was way nicer. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that, you know, about typical, like if you're running them hard, like right around 75,000 ish. Depends on what you're doing. Depends, Depends on what you know, life that truck yeah. lived. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing you can do preventative wise. They're just going to wear out when they're going to wear out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to look keep it clean. Weight. Yeah. Keep them, you know, the newer ones required clean and, you know, to stay clean. Some of the older ones don't. Sometimes your shock won't even fail. Maybe the, the bushing holding that shock in is what's going to fail first. Sure. Mm-hmm. So if you hear that hard clinking and banging, it's because the bushing gave out below it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more of our modern shocks and modern parts we're getting are getting to be stronger and stronger. So they do last the length of everything. So when everything's wore out, it's all wore out. You're not losing one part before the other, hopefully. Gotcha. I, am trying, I was trying to think back through the, okay, before I go on a trip, what are the things I'm really going to check list? And it's not common. So this isn't one that I'm remembering because I'm good at it. But the next one I would consider would be the fuel filter probably. 
like this, that, depending on the vehicle. So yeah. you can't do it on a four runner because it's in the tank and it's that's true. Sad. So yeah, know your vehicle. Yeah. If it's got these new Volvo engines and a semi have three oil filters. Wow. And on light duty service and operation, they're good to eighty thousand mile intervals for oil changes. Understand that because you tell most people that they're going to go. There's no way you go eighty thousand miles because they're missing why it's cap- why it's possible. Right. Right. This might this might be a little bit of a go back in time, but we didn't really mention if you do change your own oil, which is totally possible, not difficult to change your own oil. Also change your filter. Like, oh, <laughs> guess what? Change my. You oil. have to do change both. Change filter. Yeah, yeah, you have to do both. In fact, the filter in every time. Every time, if you ever change your oil, you're changing the filter. In fact, you you probably don't no data to back this up. You could probably get another five thousand miles by just changing the filter and leaving the oil. It, the filter is really, it, it's more, it fails quicker than the oil itself. And okay. so you got to change both because we're not actually wearing that oil out. That oil's getting dirty. Yeah. So like you just said, keeping it clean, and that's where the manufacturer spec. Or if you step into the other realm of really wanting to understand the oils and how your motor is working, you can change the micron rating of your filter or add oil filter bypass filtration, mm-hmm. which is a big thing in semi-trucks totally. because of the long miles that they do every year. Um, may not be as suitable for a smaller vehicle because the, the miles, if you're doing 10,000 miles, it may not add up. Right, But right. yes, it's filtration. Filtration is really key. And, and if you do have a fuel filter on the truck, definitely change those within the interval and make sure you're using the right micron ratings for them. Yeah, you can't, I would say, just decide, I'm going to put a different, uh, a high or a, a ultra fine micron filter in my OEM placement of my oil filter because that's going to change the ability of that engine to pump oh, that oil around. So it has to be like Matt said, it's this cool bypass filtration or it's a, it's an extra filtration system that are put on these trucks. Okay. So you got to use the right filter. So it's better off just to change it more frequently. Don't try to figure out a cool way to not change your filter. Yeah. That's going to mess with how the engineering yeah. is set up for that engine. Okay. So, um, speaking of filters, Air filters. Yeah, and there you go. There's one. Filter we can check. Yep. Especially like all the dusty roads around here. Again, like a lot of this is use case, right? Like, so even with oil, I was wondering what you guys would say as far as uh, frequency change, Mm -hmm. like 10,000 miles, 5,000 miles. What would be the norm, let's say, for a typical modern vehicle that you would feel comfortable changing the oil at? Look at what you're doing. Yeah, you this, it, it always depends, you know. I mean, do you have a dry filter? Do you have oh, what they call a wet filter, an oil filter? So these K&Ns, AFE, there's a lot of companies that make these filters that are washable. Yeah. And then you re-oil them. Because when does an oil filter work the best for keeping your engine clean? When it's dirty. It's create it's it's more of a filter at that point. An oil filter or an air filter? Air filter. Okay. An air okay. filter is going to let more pass when it's brand new and clean. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Let me clarify some things here. This is my mistake. Which filter are we talking about? Okay. Air. Sorry. All right. No, no. I, I bounced around here a little bit and I apologize. So before we jump on the air, um, I just want to clarify how often would you recommend changing your engine oil? Hmm for normal use or, or for our kind of use, you know, vehicle-based adventure overlanding, you know, 5,000 miles, 10,000 miles, doesn't matter if you're running synthetic or... Go off of the engine yeah. manufacturer spec. Okay. Now, I'll do a quick segue into if you want to go longer, whether it's because you're sick of changing your oil, you've dabbled in the synthetic oil world, Yeah. you're hearing other things, how people are going longer, and that's a thing. 
I'm a big nerd about that. I could talk about oil for days. The one real way to know how long can I go on my oil is with oil analysis. Mm -hmm. So oil analysis is a blood test for your engine oil. Wow. Okay, yeah, you can, cool. you can ship Very it off, cool. you take a sample, you ship it off to a company and they ship you back the results. And yep. they're like, change it or you're fine. Yeah, yeah. Deeper than that. Yeah, well, yeah. Parts per million deeper than that. And that's which, a, which gives but you the ultimate answer yep. is... At this point, you have to change it. When you've reached mm -hmm. this parts per million of contamination, you must change it. So, And also diagnosing other issues you may have in your engine. Yeah. I am consuming more oil. Yeah, They'll say, let's do an oil analysis and we can figure out why. Certain metals will be at certain rates that'll give them an idea. That's a bearing. That's a piston line. Yeah. That you have coolant in your oil. You have fuel in your oil. There's an add gasket issue. You can diagnose so Blood tests for your engine. It is. It's all from the chemical test. They can analyze what's in there and then identify where the problem is. Yeah, I do it on all of my vehicles, my See, friends' vehicles. You do it on your like 4Runner, just your personal car? I've been doing it forever. No way. It's been around since the 80s. He is a Zen guy. Look this at that. He is in another level. That's why he's on this podcast. <laughs> That's you. You, wow. I am amazed. It's really cheap um, and easy to do, and and you can always find help on how to read it. And usually, the manufacturer that you've sent the oil analysis back to will walk you through what that analysis means. Cool. Okay, so let's switch to, to air filters now. Okay, we're going to be clear about this segue. <laughs> I switch my air filter when I don't feel any air coming out of my vents. I'm like. How come my AC doesn't work? You mean your cabin air filter? Yes, yeah, those are two different true. things. Well, no, they're both air filters, but yeah, that's how I know. Yeah, I'm well, I'll just driving my vehicles. <laughs> I, I'll just throw in, you know, it, it's worth if you live a life like all of us do, with you know a lot of outdoor stuff, and I, like in my world with dogs and pets. Yeah, my cabin air filter, <laughs> I changed it about six months ago, yeah. and I mean. It was insanely dirty. Yeah, it was so... I took a before and after picture for people oh. just to see. I was like, you might want to think of doing this. Yes. Um, but the engine air filter okay. is what we're really talking about here. Yep. And you know, if you're running dusty roads, right? Like what a lot of people... I didn't understand this until I started working here is that the snorkel kits, while they can be useful, obviously, for fording a river, their primary use is to bring good, cold, clean air to the vehicle's engine when you're riding dusty roads and a convoy or something like that it helps i thought they just look cool and, and they look cool <laughs> like really cool. i might just get one and just glue onto the side it's a lot easier than cutting hole in your yeah exactly actually. it's scary that, that is scary yeah that saws all right on hole inside your fender yeah and it, it adds value to your truck right it's worth way more because it has a snorkel they don't have to know you didn't actually install it mm -hmm. you just stuck it on there you just stuck it on there with some tm down today you know, I, the most frequent time I will go to change my engine air filter, just besides on a regular adjustment, is if like I happen to be driving around in like grass or fields or a place where you're literally driving through the bush. Mm -hmm. Because there will be all sorts of like full of seeds in your air filter, not even just mm -hmm. dust, but just large particulate that will get sucked in there. So again, like we keep saying, where are you driving? What are you doing? What is your environment like? It is going to change how those consumable things um, are being impacted. And that, you know, to the Zen-like approach to this the, that we we're talking about with Matt, that's a real win of taking that approach is that, or at least paying it enough attention that you're not just saying, well, at X number of miles, I'm doing this mm -hmm. because it's written here. Mm -hmm. It's more like you're in tune with your vehicle, what you're doing with it. And so you know, okay, yeah, it's time to replace this or it's not. 
Sure. Right? You look in there and you're like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. I don't need to do anything to it. And even mid-trip, like I've definitely in mid-trip, you're like, oh, I don't, I didn't bring an air filter. So I'm going to take my air filter out and just tap it on the ground and get oh. the dust off, blow it off if you have air compressor and you get a few more, you get a little bit better air filter after that. I've seen Clay do that in some of our episodes. It helps. Yeah. Just like with an air, an air compressor, just blowing out the dust and then putting it back in there. Be careful with that because while you're blowing high compressed air yeah. on a filter that is not designed, because you're not getting high compressed air in your air box. Uh, Good point. Now, you, might you tear a little it. 100 PSI air going off, you know, ripping into that, what you're doing is potentially clogging the pores. Or poking holes in it. Or poking holes in it yeah. because what's worse than a dirty air filter is no air filter. True. So what is that little particulate dust doing? It's creating a sandpaper effect inside your engine. Yeah, where does, oh, that's a good point. So if you don't, if you have a, like you said, a dirty air filter is almost better. Yes. Because it's, it's going to collect more. So that means yeah. less dirt gets in. It does impede the performance of that engine, right? It won't breathe as well. So it won't have as many horsepower as when it's clean. Yeah. I'd rather have low por- horsepower and bad fuel mileage than wear my engine out because of excessive dirt in the motor. Yeah. Very we'll excellent part. a little while, but yeah. not very long. It's yeah, and yeah, it's I annoying. hear you. I mean, they're just like, you start pulling things out and messing with it and loosening this and that. Like when you're on the trail, it's like you can invite more problems, sure. I feel, sometimes. Could be. So it's just something to be careful about. Um, I see the hourglass is empty, but there is one more topic, at least I'm thinking about with basic vehicle maintenance that I don't want to overlook, and that's tires. Okay. What do you guys think about finishing with that one? Quick run. It can't. You can't go all in. Yeah, all in. No, that could be a whole podcast. Quick but run. just basic, right? What are you looking for? How do you know How do you, you can go for the weekend? What carries the weight of your vehicle, the tire or the air inside? Mm, both. It's really, that's the chamber holding that air inside. Right. So just make sure you have air in your tires. <laughs> make sure your tires are in good shape. You know, without getting too scientific in the tread patterns and the style of tire and the size of the tires and what have you. Make sure you have air in your tires and there is no significant leaks that are going to cause you a problem five miles down the road. And if there is a tire that maybe needs a little bit of issue, have your recovery kits ready to go, ARB pumps, your patch kits. I mean, I'm, again, the nerd about this where I pack tire irons and can change a tire off of a rim if I have to. God forbid. But just know, you know, do you have air in the tires and have they been consistently okay? Were you the last person to drive a truck? Have you been driving it all year long? Have you had any leaks? Mm. Can you get your wheel off? I had a friend call me last week saying he he put these tires in his truck, had a leaky valve stem since the day he got these tires on. Oh. Did he ever fix it? No, I went a year. And then the day that he was in route to go to work, calls me, has a flat tire, can't get the wheel off because it's seized on the truck. Oh, truck. Because of rust from being back east. Oh, no. Whoa. Bummer. So speaking of that, though, that's another one. Like, make sure you have valve stem covers. Like... Those are important. Why are they important? Because, well, yeah, I've, I know guys are like, well... You know. Yeah, if if you're going anywhere that is not on the road, you are introducing dirt and dust into the inside of that valve stem, mm-hmm. into the core inside of that stem, which is a little soft, rubbery seal, <laughs> right? Okay. That every time you put air in, you open and close it and open and close it and open and close it. And so if you have dirt inside of there and you put air into your dirty valve stem, you just now blow dirt through that soft mm-hmm. seal. So a dirty valve stem is a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. So. So it's a cheap valve stem. I yeah. found that out in Mexico. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Well, if you're airing up and airing down like a lot of overlanders do, yeah. you're shoving that valve chuck on there a lot. Those things aren't designed to be messed with 50 oh, times a week. Yeah. So make sure if, you, if you're a stainless steel guy or aluminum or have spares or have the capability of changing out that one, TPMS sensors for your your tire pressure management systems. Make sure all that stuff is working. You know, if and understand how it works and have a a backup in case of a failure. I've jacked up some valve stems and been sitting on the side of the road going, all right, now I have to pull this tire off in order to change this because I was experimenting in the wrong spot. Bummer. So wow. Well, I'm also thinking real quick and you know help me out here if I make a mistake, but aluminum wheels and lug nuts like you get a brand new set of aluminum wheels they torque in the spec but after you drive 50 100 miles you grab your tire iron and you check that those lug nuts again mm-hmm. and just until they're seated mm-hmm. right like i mean that, that could be a catastrophic failure great yeah yeah, right? cool. yeah you go around and check those check the torque real quick yeah, yeah. you said what i forgot and that was torquing you know okay. any, any additional box we add or alu cab or bumper before you head out. Do it right the first time. It's really going to help you in the future. Torque that stuff. Use the nylon locking nuts they give you. Use the lock washers they give you. Don't skimp on that because you'll have a tent fly up while you're going down the road. You'll have a can fall off. You'll be one of those Yakima space cases that are laying in the ditch because it didn't latch properly. Right. So really cargo securement and all your accessory securement is, is critical. Yeah, Don't let that go. Going through everything top to bottom, making sure it's torque to spec. Uh, torque wrench could be a useful investment for your shop if you're going to spend some money on something. Mm-hmm. And a final, how much gas is in your tank? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's important. Yeah, that is important. Yeah, yeah it's a simple one. But... Yeah, or into the point of saying how far I'm going to go, do I need to bring spare or no? Mm-hmm. So yeah. plan ahead, plan ahead, prepare stuff. Yeah. We were talking about tires. I, I always like to run a full size spare, make sure I have that. Yep. And I'll check to occasionally check the tire pressure in my spare. Good. Which, you know, I'm, I don't have a swing bumper yet, so I got to crawl under and check it under there. But still like, that's just something that can sit and sit and sit and sit. How often is it flat? I've got a trailer right now. I know the spare is flat. Yeah. And yeah. Useless. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Well, awesome, guys. I think this has been a great first episode, very useful on vehicle maintenance. And I'm sure there's so many things we can get into on this or so many places we can deep dive into. And I just see in the future just doing multiple episodes on vehicle maintenance and just seeing what we're going to talk about. You know, where, what do we want to deep dive in now that we've done a basic overview? When we do the Tesla, that's... That's when you want to be up back on. Tesla. Yeah, compared yeah. to internal combustion engine. I wish I that, could tell you. I could just see Tanner dealing with Icon on a suspension on a Tesla <laughs> and how much of a headache that might be. <laughs> oh, that would be fun. It's coming. Someday. It's coming. It's Tesla with a built-in yeah. Starlink. Rivium, I'm looking at you. We can help you. <laughs> we can help. <laughs> we can help. Let's make you popular. Well, everybody, thank you so much. Hope you learned a lot from this podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We appreciate your support. And until next time, stay adventurous. Stay adventurous.